This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. The FBI in Peace and War was a radio crime drama inspired by Frederick Lewis Collins' book of the same name. The idea for the show came from Louis Pelche, who wrote many of the scripts. In 1955, it was the eighth most popular show on radio, as noted in Time magazine. The show had a variety of sponsors over the years, including Lava Soap, Wild Root Cream Oil, Lucky Strike, Nescafe, and Wrigley's. This long-running series starred crime fighter Martin Blaine as the infallible field agent Shepard. This realistic crime fiction is told from the perspective of the criminal and the FBI hunting him down. And now, time for the episode, The Courier. The Equitable Life Assurance Society presents This is Your FBI. This is your FBI, the official broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, presented transcribed as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community. Appearing on this evening's program in the role of Inspector Young is George Murphy, star of the new Louis de Rochemont production, Walk East on Beacon, released by Columbia Pictures. This authentic motion picture, made with the cooperation of your FBI, reveals the manner in which the FBI is carrying out its widespread offensive against espionage in the United States. There are many examples in history of people who have given up freedom in return for promises of future security. This is not the American way. We Americans prefer to secure our future and preserve our freedom at the same time. For this reason, more than five million Americans have joined the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States of our own free will. Throughout the nation, the Equitable Society is represented by 8,000 insurance specialists. In about ten minutes, I'll tell you more about these men and how they may help you solve your problems and enjoy the advantages of membership in the Equitable Society. Tonight, the subject of our FBI file, Subversive Activity. It's titled, The Courier. Later this month, the American people will observe one of their most solemn holidays, Memorial Day, set aside for the purpose of honoring those who have died in the wars fought to perpetuate our freedom. This evening, your FBI unveils for your inspection 
the case history of an American communist. A man who may be responsible for the future deaths of countless of his fellow Americans if there should be a third world war. This man was a courier in the atomic spy ring. A citizen of our country who espoused the doctrine of hate and became a traitor. His life testified to the utter darkness of the communist way. And by examining that life, we see the tragic error of communism. A blight which saps the moral strength of a man and leaves him a helpless puppet. Tonight's FBI file opens on a January afternoon in 1944. The place is a busy street corner in downtown New York. I wasn't there. I found out about this part of the story years later. I'm Inspector Young, assigned to the Federal Bureau of Investigation's headquarters staff. I wasn't on that corner, but a short, chunky, bespectacled man was. He was carrying a book with a green leather binding. He was waiting for a man carrying a very strange object in his left hand, an ink-stained tennis ball. After waiting a few minutes, the man with the tennis ball came along. Pardon me. That book from the library? Yes. I'm Dr. Fanola. I'm Christopher. Let's walk. Tell your friend I may not be here long. You just arrived. Possible. I'll be here a week, a month, or I may have to leave tonight. For where? Maybe Tennessee. Mm -hmm. What's so important down there? Our experiments. We're working on nuclear fission. Really? Do you understand? Not entirely, but I'm a chemist. I know what atomic energy would mean. So, uh, better wait for the light. Yeah. How will I contact you in the future? On the first page of this book, you'll find a phone number. Call there and leave word with John that you want to see me. John is your superior? Yes. All right. I'll call as soon as I have something. With that meeting, the history of the world was affected. Dr. Panola was a member of a team of European scientists, and Christopher was the code name for an innocuous-looking chemist. But both had something in common besides an interest in science. Both were anxious to help in the foundation of a new world, a Soviet world. They met a half a dozen times during the next six months, always in a public place. Dr. Panola passed his papers to Christopher, who in turn kept an appointment with his superior, a man from an Iron Curtain consulate, a man named John. Pardon me, sir. Yes. You got a match? Here. Oh, thanks. Did you see him? Yes, he gave him some reports. Where are they? In a locker here at the station. He give you the key? It's in your book of matches. Thanks for the light. Whether he was meeting John or Dr. Panola, Christopher observed one rule. Caution. That was vital. For now, the information Dr. Panola was relaying was becoming more and more important. Everything was going according to plan. And then one day... John? 
Something's happened to the doctor. An accident? I can't find out. He didn't meet me this morning. I waited for two hours, and then I went to the alternate meeting place. He never came near either one. Go to his apartment. Oh, he's not there. The janitor says he left town, but he doesn't know for where. I thought he'd call you before he went anyplace. He should have. Well, what can we do now? His sister lives in this country. Oh, where? Up in New England. Her name's, uh, uh, Mrs. Kermit. I'll give you her address. Go see her. Just a minute. Good morning. I'd like to see Mrs. Kermit. I'm Mrs. Kermit. Well, I'm a friend of your brother, Dr. Panola. Oh, well, please come in. Thank you. My name is Mr. Christopher. Won't you sit down, Mr. Christopher? Thank you. Uh, Do you live here in town? No, I just happen to be going through. I called the doctor yesterday and found he left New York. Yes, he's been transferred. Where to? Someplace out west. Uh Uh-huh. Do you have his address? No, I don't, Mr. Christopher. You know Eric. He always keeps everything about his work so secret. Yes. Isn't there any way you can get in touch with him? Well, he said he'd write, but I guess he just hasn't had time. Well, Mrs. Kermit, if I leave a message, will you get it to your brother when you do hear from him? Of course. Just tell him that Mr. Christopher was here. I'll write a phone number for you in New York. Have him call me. A week went by, two weeks, a month, and still no word from Dr. Panola. Then one day, in an office at the Communist-controlled consulate in New York... Hello? John? Yes. Dr. Panola. Where are you? In Santa Fe, New Mexico. I was transferred very suddenly to a new atomic center near here called Los Alamos. You should have called me. I didn't have time. Do you have any news? Yes, and it's very important. Get a leave of absence and bring it east. I can't. You'll have to meet me. Where? Here in Santa Fe. I'll send Christopher. All right. Tell him to come to Santa Fe a week from today. I'll meet him at four in the afternoon on the Castillo Street Bridge. Four weeks later, Christopher went by train to Albuquerque. From there, he took a bus to Santa Fe. And now he used the caution he had been taught. He went to a store and purchased a city map. That meant he wouldn't have to ask anyone for directions to the Castillo Street Bridge. Wouldn't have to speak to anyone who might later identify him. Using the map, he arrived at the bridge. He began to walk across. Where are you going? The bus station. Jump in. Oh, thanks. You have the details with you? It's all the latest ones. Wonderful. What's happened? Wait until I drop you. Why? If we're stopped, I'm entitled to have them on me. You're not. Tell John he won't hear from me again. Why not? I'm going back to Europe. My work here is done. When are you leaving? Any day now. There's nothing more to be transmitted. When these papers get to Moscow, they'll know as much about the bomb as we do.
return in just a moment to tonight's exciting case from the official files of your FBI. But right now, here's a message that may be of great interest to you. It's the experience of Mr. George Whitby, a member and policyholder of the Equitable Life Assurance Society. How long have you been a member, Mr. Whitby? Four and a half years, Mr. Keating. Well, what was it that first interested you in becoming a policyholding member of the Equitable Society? It was a life insurance plan that I heard you talk about on this program, Mr. Keating. It interested my wife and me so much, we decided to find out more about it. So I looked up the name of our local Equitable Society agent. I gave him a ring, and he dropped around the next evening. He knew his business. He seemed genuinely concerned about our problem. He was more like a counselor than a salesman. I'd say that's a good description of Equitable Society men everywhere, all 8,000 of them. They help you get the kind of life insurance that will be most advantageous to you. They believe that the best insurance service is based on a friendly, mutual understanding between agent and client. Well, if they're all like our equitable agents, they're a mighty fine bunch of men to do business with. They really are. You see, equitable agents are specialists. They're trained men, professional men, who have chosen life insurance as a career. And they have the backing of a large group of home office specialists. All of them are at the service of every equitable member and prospective member. And that's a thought I'd like to leave with our listeners. Equitable society men are good men to do business with. So, if you have a life insurance problem, if you're interested in the future security and the peace of mind of your family, consult the man who can help you most. Consult your local telephone directory for the name of your local equitable representative. Or write to the Equitable Society care of this station. That's E-Q-U-I-T-A-B-L-E. The Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. And now back to the FBI file, The Courier. After that meeting in Santa Fe, we at the Federal Bureau of Investigation learned that the basic secrets of nuclear fission had been stolen. I am not at liberty to reveal how we obtained that information, for security and human lives are involved. However, I can tell you the information was conclusive. It proved beyond any question that the secrets of atomic bomb construction had been acquired by Russia. Now Mr. Hoover called a meeting and issued an order. Find the guilty man. Do the job, he mobilized every possible resource. The case was given top priority. Tom, we've gotten a break on the atomic investigation. What's that, Jim? Well, we developed some information about a scientist who was at Los Alamos back in 1945. His name is Dr. Fanola. Is he still at Los Alamos? No, he's back in Europe, so Mr. Hoover sent our information to the authorities over there. They just cabled that Fanola's made a full confession. Oh, good. Well, he claims he'll cooperate, but he's only mentioned two people he worked with over here. We have any records on them? Uh, yes and no. Uh, first man was somebody named John, who worked at the New York consulate of a communist-controlled country. Uh, where is he now? Back in his own country. Oh. The other man Panola named was the courier who delivered his reports to this John. His name is Christopher. Is that his first or last name? Panola says that's all he ever called him. Has he given us any description? Yeah. Here's the cable with all the information. Mm-hmm. Study it, then we'll go to work. The information supplied by Dr. Panola was this. 
Christopher appeared to know chemistry and engineering. He was from 30 to 40 years of age, about 5 feet 8 inches tall. He didn't know where Christopher lived, but he thought he was still in the United States. That meant your FBI had the task of locating a man whose name they didn't know, whose complete description they didn't have, and who might be anywhere in the country. In all the history of the FBI, there never was a more important problem than this one. The unknown man had to be found. Of that, there was no question. But how? Where do you start on a manhunt where the wanted person could be almost any man in the United States? Your FBI had a list of the places where Dr. Panola had remembered contact being made. One of those places was the home of his sister. I made that my first stop. Mrs. Kermit? Yes? I'm Inspector Young of the FBI. Here are my credentials. Come in, please. Thank you. I suppose you're here about Eric. Uh, yes, I am. Then those stories in the papers. They're true. I'm afraid they are. Mr. Young, may I say something before you ask me any questions? Why, of course. I, I love my brother, and, and, and I'm not deserting him while he's in trouble. But neither my husband nor I ever suspected that he was a communist. But we didn't even know what he was doing in this country. Perhaps you still can help us. Your brother says a man named Christopher visited you here. What can you tell us about him? Well, let me see. Uh, can you give us a description of him? Well, he, he was kind of a stocky man. Not too tall. He, he had sort of brown hair and heavy face. And I think he was a... Well, I say he was about in his middle 30s. Did he speak with an accent? No, he didn't. Uh, how long was he here? About an hour. Mm -hmm. Did he tell you what he did for a living? I think he said something about chemistry. Was he married? I don't think he said anything about that one way or the other. Did he uh, mention any city besides New York? Yes, he did. He told me he came here by train from... Oh, oh yes, he said Philadelphia. That's about all I can remember about him. Well, if you think of anything else, I'd appreciate your calling me. Now the full resources of your FBI were put to work. Every tenant in the large New York apartment house where Dr. Panola had lived was questioned. Some were scattered to distant points on the map, but each was located. Did any of them furnish any information? No. Former employees and scientists at the two atomic centers where Dr. Panola had been stationed were interviewed. Did they know anything about a heavy-set chemist whose name might be Christopher? No. In Santa Fe, inquiries were made at bus, air travel, railroad ticket offices. Hotel registers were analyzed, again with no results. A list of chemists was compiled from the city records of New York and Philadelphia. Of the tens of thousands who were possible suspects, 15% were immediately eliminated because they were women. Other thousands were removed from the list because of discrepancies in age, physical appearance. Gradually, the number was paired to 1,000, then 500, then 100, then 1. Jim, there's a chemist in Philadelphia named Craig. 
He might be Christopher. No. Here's his description. Thanks. Born Russia. Where'd you get his name? It was on the list of chemists, and it was in our files. We questioned him back in 1947. Oh, about what, Tom? Well, he was described as a communist suspect by a chemical engineer in New York, a fellow named Grimes. Have you spoken to this Grimes? He's dead. Uh, Where's Craig now? Working as a chemist for a hospital in Philadelphia. Uh Before that, he was with the Philadelphia Sugar Company. I've gone over their employment records, and Craig either reported sick or was on vacation on the dates Panola claims he met the courier. Uh, you interviewed Craig yet? No, that's where I'm going now. Uh, I'm looking for Mr. Craig. I'm Craig. You waiting for a test? No, I'm Inspector Young of the FBI. Here are my credentials. Mm-hmm. Well, what can I do for you, Mr. Young? When you find time, I'd uh, I'd like to ask you a few questions. Why don't we do it now? Fine. By the way, what am I charged with? Well, nothing yet. I knew I couldn't be. I haven't done anything. Ask me any questions you like. In questioning a suspect, it sometimes is a better course of action for a special agent to make his first few queries very general, covering vital statistics. Other times, an agent will uh, attempt to employ the element of surprise and make his first question the big one. I showed Craig a picture of Dr. Panola. This man familiar? Of course, that's Dr. Panola. You know him? Sure, everybody does after the publicity he got. Is that why you recognized his picture? Yes, I saw it often enough in the papers. Have you ever seen Dr. Panola in person? No, not that I know of. Why, was he in Philadelphia? I don't know. Tell me, Mr. Craig, where did you work before you got this job at the hospital? At a sugar company. How was your health in those days? Oh, not very good. As a matter of fact, that's why I took this job. I was ill quite a lot at the sugar company. When I took sick leave, they docked me for the days I missed. Did you go anywhere on those sick leaves? Oh, sometimes to New York to see a show. Usually I stayed home. Did you take any trips to New England? Never been there in my life. Did you take any vacations while you were at the sugar company? Two weeks, each summer. Did you spend them taking trips? No, no, I'm one of those unusual people, I guess. I just never was bitten by the travel bug. I like it here. Well, I guess that would mean that you've never been out west, say, to New Mexico or California. I went to Pittsburgh last year to the chemist convention. That's as far west as I've ever gone. Mm Mm-hmm. You know many chemists? Yes, of course. Did you happen to know a chemical engineer in New York named uh, Grimes? Grimes, yes. He died last year. Oh, did he? Yeah, at least that's what I heard. Uh, tell me, would you have any objections to my taking some pictures of you? Not at all. But why? Well, we'd like to use them in connection with an investigation. I see. You can refuse, of course, to grant permission. I have no objection. I uh, I brought along a camera, but I'm I'm afraid we don't have enough light in here. No, I don't. Can we go outside and take them now? Surely. At noon, I started to shoot pictures of Craig. By 2.30, the film was delivered to the FBI laboratory in Washington. They were developed immediately and put aboard a plane to Europe. The following day, at the prison where Dr. Panola was in custody, the pictures were shown to him. He leaned forward in his chair and studied the screen intently. Proof that the right man had been found could now be had if Dr. Panola identified Craig. 
The room was quiet except for the whir of the movie projector. All right, stop. That man is not Christopher. After Dr. Panola's discouraging words, we ran the film again. This time for the doctor's sister in New England. If she could make a definite identification, it would be almost as valuable as Dr. Panola's. She couldn't. In spite of this, we at FBI headquarters were still sure Craig was the man we wanted. I was in my office the following day when... Young. Hello, Mr. Young. This is Leonard Craig. Oh, hello. How are you? Pretty good, thanks. Say, I thought of something after you left. Oh, yeah? What was that? Maybe you'd like to look around my room. Oh, I can't. Why not? Well, in order to get a search warrant, I'd have to say what I expected to find in your room. You don't need a search warrant. Oh, I do, unless you're willing to give me your permission. Well, that's why I called. Will you put that permission in writing? Of course. Well, fine. When can we meet? I'll be home around 6.30. I'll be there. That evening, Craig was again as polite and cooperative as possible. He suggested I start with a table beside his bed. That's where he kept a lot of his papers. Uh, if there's anything you don't understand, be glad to explain. Thank you. Maybe a few scraps of paper with chemical data. Maybe even I won't understand it now. Oh, uh, that's, uh, that's a chemical journal. Whenever an item of interest was found, Craig was ready to give an explanation. He was supremely confident. He seemed to have an answer for every question. We worked our way through each drawer of the table and then around the room to the bookcase. Mind if I look through your books? Not at all. Hey, there's something behind them. They're paperback mysteries. Oh. I hide them so my friends won't find out I'm not an intellectual. <laughs> I see. Wait a minute. It looks like there's something back of the bookcase. Uh-huh. You mind if I move it out? No, not at all. Now that'll be enough. What did you find? A city map of Santa Fe. Huh? Maybe whoever had this room before me left it. You think the former tenant also marked the Castillo Street Bridge on the map? Well, uh... You said you'd never been west of Pittsburgh. Was that true? Mr. Craig, would you like to tell me the whole story? in federal court, Leonard Craig was sentenced to a long term in a federal penitentiary. And now a word from the star of tonight's program, Mr. George Murphy. Ladies and gentlemen, I should like to take this opportunity to tell you about one of the most exciting things that has ever happened to me. Last fall, I had the privilege of working in a new motion picture called Walk East on Beacon, a picture adapted from FBI cases photographed and portrayed as it happened with the complete cooperation of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. This is an important picture for you to see because it shows exactly how the agents of a foreign government operate. It is an exciting picture and there's a realness and honesty about it that you won't forget. 
It's a picture that Americans, both old and young, should see. I would like to thank Mr. J. Edgar Hoover for selecting me to play the part of Inspector Belly. It was one of the most exciting experiences of my life. And as for your FBI, ladies and gentlemen, in this troubled world, we should thank God every night for this wonderful group of men. The finest, most efficient, most self-sacrificing, best public servants in the world. As long as we have the FBI, we need not fear for the future of America. I think you will enjoy seeing how they protect you and your country in Walk East on Beacon. Thank you, Mr. Murphy. Now, if you are interested in planning for future security and peace of mind of yourself and your family, why not talk to the man in your community who can help you most? Your local Equitable Society representative will be glad to discuss your problems with you at any time and without any obligation. Throughout the United States, there are more than 8,000 of these insurance specialists. To get in touch with your local Equitable Society representative, simply consult your local telephone directory. The Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. Next week, we will dramatize another case from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Its subject, impersonation. Its title, The Punch and Judy Shakedown. The incidents used in tonight's Equitable Life Assurance Society's broadcast are adapted from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. However, all names used are fictitious, and any similarity thereof to the names of places or persons, living or dead, is accidental. Tonight, George Murphy was starred as Inspector Young. The music was composed and conducted by Frederick Steiner. The author was Jerry D. Lewis. Your narrator was William Woodson, and Special Agent Taylor was played by Stacey Harris. Others in the cast were Whitfield Connor, Ted DeCorsia, Isabel Jewell, and Tom Tully. This is Your FBI is a Jerry Devine production. This is Larry Keating speaking for the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community and inviting you to tune in again next week at this same time when the Equitable Life Assurance Society will bring you another thrilling transcribed story from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The Punch and Judy Shakedown on This is Your FBI. Stay tuned for The Aldridge Family next on Theater of the Mind. Time now to hear from the Aldridge family and the story of the birthday pipe. Grape Nuts and Grape Nuts Flakes present... Henry! Henry Aldridge! Coming, Mother! The Aldridge family! Yum, 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 by in the loop. Grape nuts flakes are good by gin the loop. Sugar roasted new and better. They're richer now in sweet malt sugar. Sugar roasted good by gin the Grape nuts flakes, yum, yum, by in the The Aldridge Family, based on characters originated by Clifford Goldsmith and starring Ezra Stone as Henry with Jackie Kalk as Homer, is brought to you by Grape Nuts and Grape Nuts Flakes. Hey, I hear there's sugar roasted. And now for the Aldridge Family. A teenage boy may have his ups and downs, but he's never halfway between. Henry Aldrich, for instance, never walks when he can run, and never smiles when he can laugh. 
And when he's late for dinner, he's good and late. The scene opens at the Aldrich dinner table. Sam, could I get you another piece of pie? No, thank you. What time is it now? It, it's a little after 6.30, dear. Oh, yes? Seems to me it was a little after 6.30 half an hour ago. Why, now that I look again, it, yes, it's getting on towards 7, but Sam... I'm sure Henry will be home any minute, Father. Why don't you put him right out of your mind and digest your coffee and newspaper? Mary, I can think of nothing more enjoyable than being able to put Henry right out of my mind. <laughs> After all, dear, he's only a little late, and... A little late? When we've already finished dinner? Well, I'm not trying to defend him, but we did eat quickly. And my goodness, Father, Henry was much later than this the night before last, and you didn't say a thing, Mary. Exactly. He's been late for dinner three days in a row, and he's late for breakfast every day. It's time I put my foot down. Well, the only thing is... Dear, don't think I'm criticizing, but couldn't you just put your foot down gently all the time and instead of stamping it down only every once in a while and scaring us all to death? Are you insinuating that I'm not a good father? Why, no, dear. My of goodness, of course you're a good father, father. Of course you are, dear. <laughs> but won't you let me handle Henry this once? You've been handling Henry too long as it is. Sam, are you insinuating that I'm not a good mother? My goodness, Father, look out the window. Here he comes. Where? See, he's coming up the street, pulling a wagon. Yes. What time is it? it it's a little after 6.30, Sam. <laughs> look at him, ambling along as though he had all the time in the world. Well, yes, but... What has he got on that wagon? It looks like pop bottles. Huh. Now, what's he stopping for? He's probably tying his shoelace. He's picking a bottle up out of the gutter. <laughs> Look at him standing there, looking at it. It's all right, Sam. He's putting it back in the gutter. Mother, do you think I should go out and tell him to hurry? You stay where you are, Mary. This is very interesting. Look at that. But, dear, what's wrong with stopping to pat a dog? Look, isn't that thoughtful of him? He's offering the dog a candy. Only it won't take it. I dare say the dog knew enough to go home in time to get its dinner. <laughs> Henry, come in here. Could we let him eat first, Father, before we sold him? Well, everybody, is dinner ready yet? Boy, I'm starved. I'll go and heat something up. Alice, stay here. But, Sam... Boy, what a time I've been having. Father, are you going to get a surprise? Henry, are you going to get a surprise? <laughs> Henry, do you realize what time it is? Why, You've I... been eating your meals here for a good many years now, and you're aware of the fact that your mother serves dinner promptly at six o'clock. You mean it isn't six o'clock yet? Sam, why don't you buy him a watch? Henry, according to your mother, it's a little after 6.30. It is? Well, gee whiz, I have to be someplace at half past seven. I'll have to eat dinner in a hurry. If you'd been interested in dinner, you would have been here at six o'clock. Now, please go to your room. You mean I'm going to eat dinner in my room? <laughs> I mean, son, you're not going to eat dinner at all. Sam. Father. You mean you ate everything up? <laughs> Henry, stop arguing and go up to your room. Sure, Father. Well, that's perfectly all right. I'm not hungry anyway. So, supposing I go and sit in my room... Good. ...until a quarter after seven. You will sit in your room until I tell you to come out. But, Father, I have to be someplace at half past seven. When you were rummaging around the streets picking up bottles, did it occur to you that you had to be someplace at six o'clock? Father, I wasn't... Now, look, I told you to do something. But, Father... Henry! Yes, Father. <laughs> And I hope you enjoyed your dinner. That roast beef certainly smells good. <laughs> Sam Aldrich, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Ashamed? Why should I be? 
As a matter of fact, Alice, I believe I will have that piece of pie now. Yes? Well, you'll find it in the kitchen. All right, Mother. The coast is clear. Good. You go on downstairs, Mary, and be on the lookout for your father. As soon as I get this sandwich into Henry, I'll come down, too. All right, Mother. Henry? Oh, Henry? Yes, Mother? Alice? Oh, dear. Alice, what on earth are you doing? I'm just standing here eating a sandwich, dear. Yeah? Would you you like a bite? No, thank you, Alice. I just finished my dinner. Mother, what did you call me for? I didn't call you, Henry. Are you eating something, Mother? (laughs) Yes, a a sandwich. Is it good? Yes. (laughs) It's delicious. Come along, Alice. Oh. Henry's up here in his room, Homer. Yes, has he finished his dinner, Mrs. Aldrich? No, he hasn't. Now, Homer, don't mention food to him. Why not? Hey, Henry, are you in here? Yeah. Well, hi. Hi. Gee, does that roast beef you had for dinner smell good? Boy, my one chance, my one big chance to earn that pipe I've been wanting at the Haven's Drugstore. A pipe, Henry? Yeah, and I have to stay here in my room. Gee whiz, do you think I'm old enough to smoke a pipe, too? It isn't for me. It's for my father's birthday next week. Oh. Well, I guess he's old enough. <laughs> Gee whiz, Mr. DeHaven gave me a job to do, and all I have to do is have it done by 9 o'clock tonight, and he'll pay me the pipe. What's the job, Henry? Is it mixing sodas? Maybe I could do it for you, if it's mixing sodas. Boy, Homer, would you? You see the small pile of overdue bills? All you have to do is go around and collect them all by 9 o'clock. Oh, Well, I don't think I'd be any good at collecting money. Sure you would, Homer. Henry, just before I came over here, I tried to collect an advance on next week's allowance from my father. And boy... You just weren't persistent enough. Oh, yeah? I was so persistent, I'm not going to get any allowance at all. (laughs) But look, Homer, I've already collected five bills, and that's not counting Mrs. Clark, who paid me off with a wagon load of ginger ale bottles. I'd like to, Henry, only my doctor says I have to take it easy. Okay, that's all right, Homer. Naturally, I can't force you to help me. And will you please stop swinging on my bedpost? I won't hurt myself, Henry. I've been doing this since I was a kid, and I've never fallen yet. Ouch! Boy. I did that on purpose. Henry, stop that racket! Now, look what you did, Homer. My father thought that was me. He thought that... Homer! Henry, you're choking me! Homer, my father thought you were me. Don't you realize what that means? It means he's crazy and let go. Listen, Homer, if you were to stay here in my room for an hour or so, see, and move around from time to time... Oh, no, Henry, oh, no. Homer, who'd know the difference? I could get out the back way and collect those bills, and all you'll have to do is sit here. But, Henry, my doctor says I should be out getting some exercise. Yes? Good evening, Mr. Collins. Oh, is that Henry Aldridge? Yes, sir. Gee, how are you anyway, sir? I'm fine, thank you. And Mrs. Collins? She's fine, thank you. And the children? What children? Oh. (laughs) Well, speaking of children, Mr. Collins... You bought some ice cream and stuff from Mr. DeHaven last October. Yeah, I don't remember that. About $2 worth. About $2 worth? Well, to be more exact, exactly $2 worth. Here's the bill, Mr. Collins. Oh, yes. 
guess it must have slipped your mind. The only thing is, Henry, I'm a little short tonight. Uh, but look, uh, do you know Mr. Dixon over at 23 Maple Street? I don't think so. He owes me 250 So you go on over there and collect from him and say I sent you. 250 And you just give me 50 cents. Oh, gee whiz, the only thing is I haven't much time. I, I sort of have a friend sitting in for me at home. I mean, well, are, are you sure I'll be able to collect from Mr. Dixon? Sure thing. Well, here's your 50 cents, but... Gee, I sure... And, Henry, when you get back to the drugstore, will you tell the Haven to send me up a carton of cigarettes? Sure. Would you like to pay me for them now? No, no. Just tell him to charge it. But, look, are you sure Mr. Dixon isn't home at all? No, and I can't stand here in the doorway and talk, young man. I have to phone these high school girls. Uh, but, but, look, it's only $2.50. Well... Come on in the house for a minute. Will I look in my purse? Yes, here you are. Gee, thanks. Young man, do you know any high school girls? Oh, my goodness. What's the matter with you? What's that? Of course. You do. I just have to go out for an hour, and the baby just never wakes up once she gets to sleep. The baby? Yes, and if she does, you can find a bottle in the icebox. Uh, hey, wait, I have too many bottles now. Now, where's my coat? Uh, Mrs. Dixon, I can't stay with your baby. I have to get back to Homer. I won't be long. Her name's Diane. Diane? But what about Homer? Henry. Oh, boy. Henry. Where'll I hide? Where'll I hide? May I come in? Now, Henry, I didn't say you had to go to bed. You might as well get up. I know you're not asleep with those covers over your head. You know, son, your family seems to think I've been pretty hard on you, sending you up here without your dinner, but I did it for your own good. You realize that, don't you? Henry? Henry, answer me. <laughs> now, there's no need to cry, Henry. Look, son, I don't like to have to punish you. This this being late for meals might be only a stage you're going through, but sometimes you just don't seem to be our son at all. I don't like to criticize your friends, Henry, but I sometimes wonder if you're not seeing too much of Homer Brown. Huh? What? Huh? Henry, you sound as though you're suffocating. Yeah. Well, we won't talk about it anymore. Here, son, I brought you a piece of pie. Now, see here, Henry, don't just stick your hand out from under the covers. Come on out and get it. Oh, boy. Now, look, that's enough fooling around. Come on. Henry, let go of those covers. Oh, oh. What's got into you? There. Hello, Mr. Aldrich. What are you doing here? <laughs> Hello? Hello, is that Mr. Foster? Well, my name is Henry Aldridge, and did you know you owe Mr. DeHaven $7.36 from last July? You'll pay it? Swell. Well, there's only one other thing. Would you consider coming over here to 23 Maple Street with it? I have to stay here with a baby, seeing. But, but Mr. Foster, all the other customers are doing it. Well, some of them are. Well... One of them is Mr. Foster. Mr. Fo Boy, that's a fine thing. 
Good evening. Uh, good evening. Uh, are you the boy from New Haven? Yes, sir. You must be Mr. Wright. Uh, that's right. Boy, come on in. I sure appreciate your coming over here. Now, uh, how much did you say my bill was? Sixty-seven cents. Uh, very well. Uh, here you are. Thanks. Gee, I can't change ten dollars. Would you mind just giving me the sixty cents in cents? Oh, I'm sorry, young man, but this is the smallest I have. Well, look, why don't I do this? Why don't I run down to a store and get a change? Well, and I... you can stay with the baby. What baby? Diane. You won't have a bit of trouble. She just never wakes up once she gets to sleep. And if she does, you'll find the bottle in the ice. <laughs> Dear me, Mr. Weiss, what a predicament. Oh, come now, Mr. Wright, taking care of a sleeping baby? Well, there's nothing to it. If the baby wakes up and starts crying, would you know what to do? Would I? Now, just you listen to this. Yum, 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 I am the liquid. Yum, 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 Yes, even a baby will start smiling when it hears that happy tune. And it's nothing like the smiles you'll see when sugar-roasted grape nuts flakes are served. That wonderful sugar-roasted flavor just hits the right spot. And remember, this one delicious flavor comes in two delicious forms. Grape nuts, crisp, crunchy kernels, and grape nuts flakes, tempting, toasty brown flakes. That's grape nuts and grape nuts flakes. They're sugar-roasted. <laughs> And now, getting back to the troubles of Henry Aldrich. When Henry arrived home late for dinner, Mr. Aldrich felt he should be punished. But the reason for Henry's lateness was that he was trying to earn a pipe for his father's birthday present. The scene opens under a streetlight on Centerville's Main Street. Oh, boy. Hey, mister! Mister, could you give me a hand here? Henry! Oh, boy. Father, is that you? How long did you think you could hoist Homer off on me? But, Father... And what on earth are you doing lying on your face on the sidewalk? Well, I have to get my face right down on this grating to see where my ten dollars is. What ten dollars? The one down in this hole. Father, under the grating, it, it blew out of my hand. Do you realize that you disobeyed me? Do you realize I have been combing this town for you? Sure, Father, but I can explain everything. Get up. Yes, sir. You see, there was this thing I wanted, only I can't tell you what it is. And I just had to collect some bills, only I got held up with this baby, see? A baby owed you a bill? No, Father, it was her father. Well, he didn't owe it to me. He owed it to another man, and I gave him 50 cents because it was a bill from last October. Henry, are you trying to tell me that you owed somebody 50 cents since last October? After all the times I've told you never to borrow money? No, Father, I just borrowed the baby, and then it fell down this grating. What? Not the baby, the $10. Oh, boy. Father, just let me explain one thing to you. Henry, let me explain one thing to you. You were to march right straight home and go up to your room and stay there. Do you understand? But, Father, that $10 belongs to a man over at 23 Maple Street. I'll get the $10 out of here. All I have to do is reach in for it. Now, go on home. Yes, Father, I'm going. Don't stop to talk to anybody, and don't come back. Yes, Father. Now, then. If I could just get my arm. Henry! Henry, my arm is caught in the grating. Henry, come back! Mother, you mean you really do? Of course. 
course, Henry. I follow you perfectly. Well, gee whiz, how is it I can always make you understand? Father always gets me mixed up. Oh, it's very clear to me, dear. You've had a date since last October to mind Mr. Dixon's baby. What? And he said he'd give you his best pipe that he found down underneath a grating if you'd collect $10 that Mr. DeHaven owed him for some bottles. Now, Mother, I guess you didn't understand. Now, Henry, didn't you say you wanted to get a pipe as a present for your father? Yeah, sure. Gee, if I've made that clear, that's all that matters. For Father's Day. No, for Father's birthday. Oh. Hey, Henry. I'm in the living room, Homer, with my mother. Henry, I've been looking all over for you. Your father caught me in your room. And, boy, it's a good thing I found you before he did. Homer, you're too late. No, I'm not, Hen. I've got it all figured out. You can hide in my basement for the next few days. Now, Homer, he isn't going to do any such thing. His father said he was to go straight to his room. But, Mother, I just have to collect six more of these bills before nine o'clock. Wouldn't you consider letting me go out for only half an hour? No, dear. Your father's going around saying that I spoil you. Look, Mother, do you suppose there's a way that I could collect the money and still not leave my room at all? Wait a minute. Now, Mr. Allridge, for the last time, if you don't stay down on your knees, there's nothing I can do for you. How long do you think I can hold this position? My back's nearly broken. Well, you're going to get your arm broken if you don't hold it. Well, then kindly hurry up. You realize I had to walk six blocks with this grate on my arm? Yes, Mr. Allridge. <laughs> but I can't say I like your attitude. Do you realize I closed this hardware store two hours ago and I came from clear across town to help you yes, out? Yes, of course. I didn't mean to. And I'm doing the very best I can. I realize that, Mr. Jackson, and I appreciate it very much. All right. Now, see if you can hold still. Oh! Very well, Mr. Aldridge. If that's your attitude, you can go straight to the blacksmith. <laughs> Mrs. Walker, this is Alice Aldrich. I just thought I'd phone and give you that chocolate cake recipe you've been wanting. Well, yes, it's always been a family secret, but I just decided there's no point in being selfish about it. Oh, and by the way, Mrs. Walker, did you know that you owed a Haven's drugstore $9.13? Yes, of course you'd forgotten about it, dear. Supposing I send Homer Brown over to pick it up. And then he'll be glad to give you the recipe. Hello? Hello, are you still there, Doris? Well, I know I'm not home. I'm sitting here in some stranger's house minding a baby. <laughs> no, dear, a baby. I know, dear, but listen. I gave a young boy $10 and he was going to change it. No, dear, change the $10. Oh, but dear, you don't understand. Dear? Goodbye, dear. Excuse me, is your name right? Uh, yes, uh, are you the father? Why, yes. Well, I'm certainly glad you're here. Uh, come on in. Thank you. Now, just a minute now. If I can manage to get my billfold out. I I notice your arm is in a sling. Were you in an accident? Yes. Uh, here, here's your $10. Uh, thank you. I'll just get my coat. Uh, hey, wait a minute. Where did you get the $10? Look, I'm trying to forget. Kindly take the money and let's not talk about it. Well, that suits me. I'll drop into the Havens and pay that bill on my way home. Uh, good evening. Oh, here, wait. I'm leaving, too. Oh, no, no, you can't. Your wife isn't home. Oh. You'll have to stay with the baby. Oh. Uh, good evening. Good evening. Mr. Wright! Wait a minute! What baby? <laughs>
Henry, what time is it? It's, it's just a little after nine o'clock, Mother. Henry, it must be an hour since you said it was only a little before nine o'clock. Gee, I'm sure Father will be home any minute. After all, he's only two hours late. Oh, let's see that pipe again, Henry. Here. Boy, isn't it a beauty? I'll say. And was Mr. DeHaven surprised when I took in all the money? Yeah? He said to tell you you were the best bill collector he ever had. Gee, Mother, and to think that chocolate cake has been a family secret for generations. Henry? Yes, Mary? I have the tissue paper out here in the kitchen. Do you want to wrap Father's pie? Sure, Mary. Can we do it up real fancy, wife? You better step on it, Hen, so your father doesn't see it. Homer, what time is it now? Alice! Sam! Oh, boy, I'm going home. Good night, Mrs. Aldrich. Are you in the living room, Alice? Sam Aldrich, where have you been? Alice, I can explain everything. Oh, my goodness, your arm. You've been in an accident. No, Alice, this wouldn't have happened if Mr. Jackson hadn't lost his temper. All I said was, ouch. He'd say, ouch, too, if I was twisting his arm off. So that's it. You've been fighting. Fighting? At your age. Listen to me, Alice. This $10 bill fell down a grating, and I got my arm caught in it trying to reach the money. Was Mr. Jackson trying to reach the money, too? No, dear. I had to lift the whole grating off with my arm still in it, and then I had to get down into the hole and get to $10. You mean Mr. Jackson pushed you in? No, no. I got in by myself. And Mr. Jackson wouldn't let you out? Alice, forget about Mr. Jackson! Well, my goodness, you didn't yell. Frankly, if that's the way you were, I don't blame him for hitting you. Alice, listen. Mr. Jackson did not hit me. Mr. Jackson didn't do a thing except bite my head off. Then why are you so late? Because I've been minding the baby. What baby? Well, you see, I went... Uh, Mr... Never mind, you wouldn't believe it anyway. <laughs> Mother, have you got a longer piece of ribbon I could tie around this... Henry! This... Oh, gee whiz. Why aren't you in your room? Oh, I'm going, Father, but... Do, do you mind my asking what happened to your arm? Mr. Jackson bit him, dear. <laughs> Henry, wait a minute. What's that you're holding behind your back? Oh, boy. Well, it isn't anything, Father, just... Just some tissue paper. Yes, in that case, let me have it, please. Sam. Father, couldn't you just wait a day or so? I mean... Hand it over. Yes, sir. What's in here, another pop bottle? No, sir, it's... It's... Well... Happy birthday, Father. Only I certainly hadn't planned it this way. You mean this is... Uh, this pipe is... It's your birthday present, Sam. It is? For my birthday? And Henry earned it himself, collecting bills. That's why he left his room, and incidentally, why he was late for dinner. Well. Well. You see, Alice? It's a pipe. <laughs> well, it, it's about the best-looking one I've ever seen. Boy, Father, do you really like it? Yes, indeed, Henry. And Well, thank you, son. He earned it, Sam. Yes, Alice, I know. Well, Henry, so you earned it. Yes, sir. Well. And you know the next thing I'm going to earn, Father? A watch, so I won't ever be late for dinner again. Well, son, you couldn't help being late. Sometimes things happen, Henry, that are beyond our control. But just the same, Father, it's not going to happen again. You see this stack of bills? Yes. Mr. DeHaven sent them up here with Homer. He said if I can do as good a job collecting these, he'll pay me a watch. Well, I think that's very commendable, Henry. When do you start? Right now. Father, did you know you owe Mr. DeHaven $12 and a quarter from before Christmas? <laughs> I knew a character who prided him.
himself on never being late except once. Well, what happened that time, Mr. Zip? Well, his character sets out for his own wedding 240 miles upstate, but along comes a blizzard and stops the train. So he hires a horse and sleigh, but the horse gives up, climbs up into the sleigh, and goes sound asleep. No. Yes. So next he gets a sled and a dog team, but the dogs wear out and give up. So then my friend gets out his skis, tugs three dogs under each arm, and mushes all the way to the church just in time to prevent the best man from eloping with his girl. Man, what energy. Why, he must have been eating grape nuts. He was. He told me. Them sugar-roasted grape nuts. Any objections? Nary a one, Mr. Zip. I like a little mushing myself. And Fred... <laughs> And friends, while you may not want to plow through blizzards, it's great to have the energy so you plow through the day's work like lightning. And it is grape nuts for energy. Grape nuts for important bodybuilding food values of the whole grain. And don't forget, this one delicious flavor comes in two delicious forms. Grape nuts, crisp, crunchy kernels, and grape nuts flakes, tempting, toasty brown flakes. They're both sugar-roasted, crisply toasted, naturally nourishing. Sam? Yes, dear. <sighs> what a day. Well, my goodness, where did you get this? What? This great big handkerchief. Alice, that isn't a handkerchief, and I'll have to return it to Diane tomorrow. Who's Diane? Well, you see, Alice, it's... <laughs> Jack Miller is based on characters originated by Clifford Goldsmith and stars Ezra Stone as Henry with Jackie Kalk as Homer. Mr. and Mrs. Aldrich are House Jamison and Catherine Roth. And this is Dwight Reese saying the Aldrich family was brought to you by Grape Nuts and Grape Nuts Flakes. They're sugar roasted. Same time, same stations to another sparkling half hour with the Aldridge family. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's the Green Hornet, followed by the Fred Allen Show. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.